Hi, everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. We are going to talk today about how volunteer board members and their management professionals could do their jobs more effectively and in a less stressful manner by employing solid communication skills. I've worked with boards for more than two decades, and many of the people serving on these boards have corporate backgrounds, but often the skills they acquired in their professional careers are not fully utilized during their service as a volunteer board member. How much more fulfilling could board service or an association management career be with just a little coaching? We're fortunate to have Carmelo Milamachi with us today, and he's going to give us the answer to that question. Carmelo is going to give us an overview on what professional coaching is. Carmelo is a professional certified coach, and for the last 20 years, he has worked with executives and their teams. He is a member of the International Coaching Federation. Carmelo currently works as a senior advisor for Ackert, a leader in business development coaching, and also founded Attune Coaching and Consulting. Carmelo, welcome to Take It to the Board. Hi, Donna. Thank you for having me. I'm excited because this is a resource that popped into my head a few months back that I don't think anybody is talking about in the community association industry. So hopefully we're going to open a few eyes with this episode. I'm going to be asking you, Carmelo, about coaching because a lot of our listeners, they may just not understand the concept of coaching in the context we're going to be discussing today. And for our listeners, a little disclaimer. Carmelo is giving his perspective on these topics. He's not providing specific coaching advice to you or your community. So let's start out with the basics, Carmelo. What constitutes coaching? The definition of coaching, according to the International Coaching Federation, is partnering with clients in a thought-provoking and creative process that inspires them to maximize their personal and professional potential. The process of coaching unlocks previously untapped sources of imagination, productivity, and leadership. And so what that means in this context is we can replace clients with person. So partnering with a person or an individual in a thought-provoking and creative process. So what does that actually mean? What it means is in a coaching conversation, or if you're taking a coaching approach, what you're doing is you're creating a space where someone feels both challenged and supported to realize a desired future state. And that future state is as they've defined it. In other words, coaching is about helping someone identify a goal and charting a path to achieve that goal. And one of the things I like to say in coaching is, is as a coach, we see everyone as creative, resourceful, and whole on their own, which means that the person in front of you has the answers in them, and they simply need the space to surface those answers and empower themselves. In other words, to dig a little bit deeper, uh, in a coaching conversation, what that means is the coach does not have to have subject matter expertise. The coach actually, in a coaching conversation, doesn't actually provide advice or guidance. And that might seem contrary to what some of your listeners might think in terms of their roles on a board or otherwise. But a coach coaches the person around their relationship to an issue and not the actual issue. And that's a distinction in coaching. Yeah, that's very important because you, so if I'm hearing you correctly, and let's say you're going to be coaching a board of directors, let's say it's a five member board, you don't need to know the answer to their parking situation or their budget or their reserves. What you're there to do is listen to them and teach them some skills. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's really about amplifying your soft skills in the context of your technical, your hard skills. So yes, you do need to bring technical skills, expertise to a conversation given your role. What coaching does is it layers on top of that the interpersonal skills. So how can you focus a little bit more on the being part of the conversation before the doing part of the conversation? That's another way to state that. So I know there's going to be some people listening already and say, this sounds like therapy. <laughs> <What's> the <laughs> yeah. You know, we don't need, and, you know, some of them do need therapy. There's a lot of dysfunction we're going to talk about today yeah. in, in some of these communities. But what's the difference between what you do as a professional coach and what maybe a therapist does? A couple of distinctions, and yes, it feels like it can creep into therapy, absolutely. But uh, two things. One, in coaching, like I said, we don't provide advice. If we're truly in coach mode, we don't provide advice or guidance. And that can often happen in therapy. And the second thing that we don't do is we don't typically look back on what happened in order to inform what we do in the future. We look at the individual or the situation in the moment. So what is the current state and what is your desired future state? So what is the outcome you want? And let's create an environment where we help you shape the path 
We help you create the path to that outcome through actions and through accountability. So I am one of the many fortunate graduates of your coaching classes, which I took here at as part of Becker's leadership program. And you're the person, Carmela, who flipped on a light switch for me when you said we're always navigating conflict, including when we're just trying to figure out where to go to dinner with a group of people. So tell me, because you talked about soft skills and hard skills and people looking at where they are today and where they want to be. How can people be coached to resolve conflicts? Yeah, and I'll start by saying we, we can't avoid conflict. Conflict is in all aspects of our professional and personal life. It's just what it is. And so having that lens of we can't get rid of conflict. So what I often see is we can take two approaches. We can avoid conflict. So not address it altogether, which creates a whole different uh, set of circumstances and tensions that is not that ultimately don't become manageable, isn't manageable. Or you can manage conflict by jumping into it in a healthy and unproductive way. And so what coaching suggests is you're going to have conflict. So why don't we look at ways to engage in a conflict scenario and do it in a productive and healthy way. And one of the things that I think is really important when uh, any conflict arises is starting off with not making assumptions. Uh, One of the things we do in coaching is say to our clients or whoever it is that we're speaking to in a coaching engagement, am I making assumptions around the situation at hand? Am I making assumptions around how the why the person is behaving in a certain way, what created that scenario, are they making assumptions about me? And so one of the things I I like to say is validate your assumptions as a starting point in any conflict scenario, and particularly from a coaching perspective. And then it really is about saying, so what what are the coaching competencies? What is the style and the approach that I can bring to a conflict scenario by tapping into coaching competencies that actually support a healthy and productive resolution of a conflict. And so a few stand out for me. And by the way, I should say there are several coaching competencies. My work through the International Coaching Federation has dozens of them. We are not going to cover dozens dozens of them in this conversation. And I want to highlight just a few key ones that I think apply, particularly for your audience um, in, in the circumstances around engaging with a board or management or owners. These competencies, quite frankly, you'll see apply across uh, professional environments and personal environments. And one of them is presence. So it really starts with presence. And that's validating your assumptions is also rooted in presence in the sense of Presence is your ability to fully and consciously create spontaneous relationships and and being open, flexible, and confident. Presence is really about how you show up, not just physically how you show up, but how how you show up emotionally and mentally. And so having a foundation of going into a conflict scenario where you're clear about your presence, what is the energy you're bringing into that? Is it an assertive, aggressive, angry energy? Or is it a more relaxed, calm, let's let's get to the bottom of this bottom of this type of energy? Let me stop you there. So you talked about assumptions and Mm -hmm. I've always talked about intentions. Is it coming from a place of good intentions or bad intentions? And some people Mm -hmm. have a default position that if you have a conflict with them, it's because you're coming from a place of bad intentions. When you talk about having presence and making assumptions, are you suggesting one of the coaching competencies to just ask? okay, you took away my parking space. You know, what was the motive behind it? What was the intention? How how simple can we drill down on this in terms of the communication that's needed to resolve the conflict? Yeah, exactly that. So I always start with powerful questions. So can I ask a question in this situation that will reveal intention, that will eliminate assumptions? By powerful questions, what I mean is, the ability to ask questions that reveal information that's needed for maximum benefits of the relationship. So what's happening here and how can I find out through a question? And so what you ask and how you ask a question is the energy behind asking that question, asking open-ended questions, asking non-accusatory questions is really key to this space. I find that when we start with, let me not make a statement, let me ask a question here and then ask another and then ask another to uncover what's really at play here from the other person's perspective, that opens the door to you then providing your perspective initially. Because coaching, although coaching, as I stated, is is not about you providing your advice or guidance, of course, there are several instances where you do have to provide your, your advice and your guidance. You are expected to have subject matter expertise on something, so you will need to tap into that. What I'm suggesting here is you layer on top of that first before you get to that advice piece is you're asking questions to clarify assumptions, to state intentions, 
and lead both parties or all parties towards the path of that desired future state. How important is it, Carmelo, if the parties involved in this conflict have had a history together? Okay, it may have been prior litigation. One may have beat the other one out for a spot on the board, but they have history together. I imagine that you have coached people on your teams that have had some history of conflict. And I imagine that that makes it a little bit difficult for them to trust your coaching methodology. Tell me about that a little bit, because in a lot of our communities, there's history here where we've got one particular person who feels that the board may have it in for him or her or vice versa, or a member of the board who feels constantly marginalized. What's the best way to overcome that? I think it starts with being different, showcasing a different way of being. And that starts with presence. So if, if someone has experienced you a certain way, it's incumbent on you to help shift that perception and be different in the scenario. So that means if your presence was one way, you know, assertive, aggressive, challenging, whatever, however that person rightfully or wrongfully might have perceived you, it's it's then incumbent on you to shift their perspective on that. And one of the ways is presence, but another way is by asking, going back to questions, is by asking questions and being inquisitive. I like to call this an inquisitive mindset. An inquisitive mindset is one where you're really genuinely interested in what the other person has to say, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what are the reasons for the way they're acting, their behavior, and ultimately how you can you support them. But it starts with, let me just get some context here by asking some questions. And layered on top of that, that's important in terms of building trust is you can ask a question and not listen actively. So active listening, and I know we talk about active listening a lot, but active listening at its core is your ability to focus completely on what the other person is saying, and maybe more importantly, what, what the other person is not saying. So what is someone telling you that reveals their values, what's important to them, how they build trust, and what are they not telling you? And so, but that sounds like Carmelo. That sounds like a level of nuance and subtlety that some people may not pick up on. And I want to, I want to ask you about the different types of listening. Which you said be different. Should you start out right out of the gate saying I'm different? Should rather than having them intuit that from the questions you're asking, could you just say, "Listen, I know we've had history. I know you may not trust my intentions, but I'm I'm different." Does that work? I would say yes, but I would say, you know, if we're putting this in the context of a building trust or rebuilding trust with someone, I think the ideal is to put it in the in the context of a scenario. So if something is happening in the moment where you can showcase that new way of being, it's about the questions you ask. So it could be instead of going in with a this is what I see as the situation, here's what I see that happen, here's the issue, here's how we need to resolve it. Again, advice giving, nothing wrong with that. Maybe the way to approach that is to first start off with what happened? What is the reason for the action that w- that was taken here? What is your what is your understanding of the rules? What is what is your understanding of the situation at play here? What are the implications of the rules not being followed? What are the implications of us not not taking this path for the owner, for the board, for the manager, for other owners, for stakeholders, whoever it might be? What needs to happen to resolve this issue? So can we create an action plan together with deadlines? How do we expect to behave going forward? How will we hold ourselves accountable? So it's really about building trust by saying, let's let's work on this get together. Let's collaborate. And the way we're going to collaborate is by me not immediately jumping in and giving you my advice, but me asking you for your perspective and building trust that way. I can imagine that some people are listening and think this is fantastic. And others are listening and thinking, why would I do all that work when I hold the cards? Right. If I'm the executive or I'm on the finding committee or I'm on the board and I believe somebody has violated the rules, I'm just going to use the tools that I have at my disposal, whether it's finding suspension, litigation. I'm the one in control. What, what you know, this sounds great, but it sounds like a lot of work and I may not have to do it. What would you say to somebody when you're coaching them who has that mindset? I would say, what's your intention? The outcome is likely going to be the same. Someone needs to change a behavior. You need to follow the rules. So the end result will be someone has to change a behavior. Someone needs to follow the rules and we're enforcing them. Absolutely. My question to that person would be, well, how are you going to get there? So how are you going to how are you going to do it in a healthy and productive way? So you can do it by saying these are the rules, this is what you did wrong, and this is how it needs to be fixed. There might be circumstances where that's warranted. Absolutely. My challenge to that individual is to say, 
if you take a coaching approach to start to say before I set the ground rules on how this needs to look going forward, let me first see if I can understand if there was something at play here that I didn't quite get. That me, even if there's a nuance here that can create some awareness for me, that might shape the way I get to the outcome. And ultimately, what that should do for that individual is make them feel heard. So give them the space to reveal what it is that they did, why they did it. You can explain the impact to them. This is the impact of your action or inaction in this case. And here's how we need to move forward. But let me hear your perspective first, because maybe there's something, maybe there's something that I did that can compel me to change so I can behave differently going forward and will prevent this from happening. You know, many of the people who may question whether or not coaching makes sense in the association context, because it's a living together relationship, right? And this is why I think it is an untapped resource. But it's just dawned on me, Carmelo, that for those who embrace your coaching, engaging in a coaching discussion, um, it may actually cost me some litigation. Let's just call the attorney and, you know, have the attorney send a letter and then off we go to the races. But I mean, truly, if some boards tapped into this as a resource, some of these disputes might just be snuffed at it early on. Absolutely. So, you know, and, and of course, I can't speak to the litigation process. That is not my area of expertise. And I, I can't speak to what you can and cannot say or should and should not say. You know, with that, challenge individuals to think, what is it that I can garner in terms of new information? What is it that I can garner in terms of awareness on both sides that might ease litigation, might prevent litigation, might make my conversation with my legal counsel maybe easier, maybe more productive? Is there information I can gather? Is there awareness I can build by executing, by deploying a coaching approach in a conversation? And how can that support me in sort of a preventative space? Again, asking questions, active listening, gathering as much information as you can, building awareness. Building awareness, different than, than acceptance of the situation. You know, Building awareness is not necessarily accepting the situation, but it's, it's creating awareness around the situation or the fact. And then the ability to integrate and evaluate multiple sources of information and make interpretations. I would imagine that would support even a, a you know a potentially contentious litigation scenario. You know, it's funny you say building awareness. I had a situation years ago, and I mentioned this in a podcast episode I had with Chris Ayub of Real Manage. And we'll put the a link to the show notes for that episode in this in this episode. And I talked to Chris. Chris Chris's episode was about mental health, Carmelo. And the board had sent over an, an issue, and it was about an elderly woman who was sleeping in the the common area lobby. And the assumption was being made that she was just a rule breaker. And I said, "There's got to be something else going on here that this individual would leave the comfort of their home and suddenly start." you know, sleeping in on a couch in, in the common lobby. And sure enough, as we dug a little bit deeper, it was an unfortunate uh, domestic abuse situation between two elderly owners, one of whom he happened to be having significant cognitive issues. So to your point, rather than just assuming and, and adding fuel to the fire, and now this individual who was actually a victim in the situation receiving a demand letter where we're, you know, making it even tougher on her mentally, we actually dug into it. Donna, that, that is a prime example of uh, whether consciously or unconsciously using a coaching approach, which is the one way the one way to have addressed that was to say cease and desist or halt or whatever it is that you would normally do under, under those circumstances. You cannot do this. Of course, you cannot sleep in a common area is what I'm understanding. But instead, it was it was you took a pause and said, let's first understand what's really at play here. Yes, the behavior needs to change. But why don't we take some time to really unpack what's the reason someone is behaving this way? It sounds like it revealed you know, some areas that needed to be dealt with separately, but you wouldn't have had that perspective necessarily had you not taken that approach. Well, and we did. We brought in adult children and we brought in some resources from the state and the situation was resolved and it was resolved in a humane manner. And that's a great point around coaching. Coaching is coaching is really at its core about the human interaction, the interpersonal aspect of a conversation. Again, I'm not dismissing the need for technical skills. You need to be able to speak to the rules and advise on what to do next and all those things that are important from a hard skills perspective. You need that. 
this is about layering on top of that the human element, the interpersonal element, the what's what's behind this behavior. Can I understand what's behind the way someone's behaving a certain way? Because when you can do that and someone feels heard, you ultimately build trust. Sure. So sometimes the conflict, Carmelo, is between different board members. So listen, typically we have anywhere from three-member boards to nine-member boards in some of the larger communities with master associations, we may have upwards of a dozen people on these boards. And listen, you know, naturally they have varying viewpoints about, you know, what their jobs are, what their functions are, how the community should look, how it should be run. How do directors with very different views on the community enforcement and other issues, how do they learn to trust each other? It's going to go back to, again, the, the, Present uh, powerful questioning and ultimate leading to actionable items. So you know one one of the things one of the things that I think is important to address in coaching is it's it's not just about the uh, you know the soft skills and getting to the powerful questions and active listening. It is ultimately about what are the accountability pieces here. Also, I want you to describe the difference between soft and hard skills. You've mentioned that a couple times. Yeah, the soft skills being. The more interpersonal skills, the more what we, we consider human skills in terms of communication style, um, uh, uh, you know, r- responsiveness, uh, the energy behind how you communicate, how you how you're present. Hard what about skills, body language? Like body language. We, we can see each other right now. We're, we're only capturing the audio. But how important, you know, I, I, body language in terms of communicating respect or disdain for the person you're speaking to? Absolutely. Presence presence is not just emotionally and mentally present. It's not just about being emotionally and mentally present. It also is about your physical presence. I don't necessarily mean the way you're dressed, although that can have an impact, of course, on you know the how how someone receives you and how you receive others. But physical presence, are you leaning in? Are your arms crossed? Are you looking away? Or are you engaged with someone? Are you looking, are you creating you know eye contact that is comfortable for them are you open in your in your body language in terms of you know your arms not being crossed how, how are you present in terms of the space that you're in you know the, the space where you have these conversations can actually the physical space can actually create a positive outcome or a negative outcome you're talking about having a conversation around conflict or you know possible litigation or whatever it might be that is more on the serious end you want to think about the environment you're in and your, and your physical presence there because it, it can really create a different reaction in someone. So my experience, though, Carmelo, with everything you've been saying, and it sounds great, but my experience is that some people just don't like to be on the losing end of a vote and they really, really cannot accept the consequences. So if the board has decided to do the roof rather than the lobby renovation at this point, and I have a board member who feels strongly that the priorities were reversed and it should have been the lobby renovation for the room. Mm. Is it possible to coach that personality type into an acceptance stance? I would actually look at it as I don't know from a coaching perspective. I don't know that I would ever feel that I can coach someone into acceptance. I would more look at it through the lens of can I coach them into awareness uh, acceptance implies that we have control over the way someone agrees or disagrees with something. And frankly, in a coaching conversation, I I don't know that that's possible or that's the intention, quite frankly. Awareness is a different thing. Awareness is, can we create as much awareness around the reasons we have chosen this path, the reasons we have taken this action, the reason we have behaved this way, so that the individual is fully aware of you know, the, the reasons behind an action or a path or a course of action. So it, this is really about, can we get them as close to acceptance as possible? Yes. Can we get them to accept the situation? Probably not. And I think we can disagree with the circumstance and an outcome and not and not accept it, yet be fully aware of the reasons behind the circumstance. And I think that's all you can control is mm-hmm. providing that transparency and clarity And the way someone responds is in their hands and out of your control. Is some of the resistance to, let's say, what this scenario I gave, accepting being on the losing end of a vote, or or even some of the resistance to collaboration being driven by someone taking it personally, taking everything too personally? Absolutely. We all do that. 
I have. <laughs> I know you know I have. <laughs> I, I do it on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to it's it's, it's a challenging thing to get out of the um, get out of the space of is this personal or not. Because of course, when someone's addressing something with us, it's directed towards us. So how can we how can we not see this personal? I think though, as the person delivering that message, if you are in coach mode, the way to minimize that, if not eliminate all, eliminate it altogether, is to get their input. Is to this is not about critiquing you. This is not about judging you. Although there might be some elements of that in what the outcome looks like, but this is really about let's. I want to hear your perspective. I want to understand, you know, what actions you took. I want us to both understand and ideally agree upon or get alignment on what was the impact of the action or inaction. And then let's let's agree as much as possible on the outcome and the next steps. That way you're you you are minimizing the you know why why am I taking it personal scenarios. I mean, it's, I, I think it's, I think it's unavoidable with some, I think even, even in a coaching approach, I've seen this myself, individuals still feeling like even in some of the questioning, you know, the way you, even, even in a coaching scenario, even in a coaching approach where you're asking open-ended, genuinely inquisitive questions, someone can take that as a judgment. Mm-hmm. And an example of that is uh, why, why questions. So I, I tend to avoid why questions. Why did you do that? Because although that's, legitimate question. Why did you do that? I want to understand the reasons behind your thinking. Why can have a little bit of an edge to it? So oftentimes what I'll do is I'll shift that question to what happened here? What what are the reasons we chose this course of action? It might be a subtle shift, but it might be enough to make someone not feel like they're being attacked. That's that what you just said, that little example, I'm just running it through my head. Well, for instance, when we've got directors who are doing battle on the board, one of the one of the tools that a, a, a director, a disgruntled director, may use, is to take a confidential bit of information from that meeting and disclose it on their website or share it with members of the community. Maybe even designed for the purpose of embarrassing the board or throwing up roadblocks to what the board wants to achieve. And you're right, saying why did you do that? Why did you? release that uh, privileged information? Why did you use the association email chain for your own, you know, for your own uses as as opposed to the board's business is what happened here, right? What What happened here? How do you think somebody would respond to that though? I, I would be, that would be fascinating to hear a director who had done something like that. When you say what happened here, I, I do think it makes it harder for them to kind of hide from what happened. Absolutely. And in both questions, you're seeking the intention. The question becomes, what is your intention in asking the question? Is it to judge or is it to learn? And here's where mindset, you know, I talked about inquisitive mindset. Another another perspective on mindset is in your conversation, are you in, in, a, in a learning mindset or are you in a judging mindset? Of course, there are spaces where judging is important evaluating, analyzing, judging a situation is important. But let's first start with the learning mindset. So what can I learn about the situation before I provide a judgment, an opinion, an angle, advice, a change in behavior, suggestion, whatever that might be. So, you know, this is, again, this is not about dismissing elements of, of what are important in a conversation, whether they be about soft skills versus hard skills or learning versus judging. But let's start with a coaching approach. Let's start with an inquisitive mindset. Let's start with a learning mindset. What can I learn from this versus what can I judge here? You know, it's it's even about and shift your perspective that who's at fault, who's to blame, what happened to what happened here and what are the reasons they happened? Because I might be part of the reasons this person took that action or inaction. That's a really good suggestion. And look, that again, there are decisions to be made. There are requests that are made. Can I do this? Can I build my fence into the setback area? Can I have a second parking space? And so there are judgments that will need to be made. There are evaluations that need will need to be undertaken. And there are ultimate decisions that might not sit well with the person making the request. But I think the process that you're, you've laid out is equally important. Yes, Absolutely. So I know, Carmela, you served on a diversity committee, and Florida has incredibly diverse communities throughout the state. And I think our boards are becoming more reflective of that demographic. 
But we have a way to go. I remember just starting out when I would go to board meetings and I would see basically the same face on the board five times over. Okay. And I'm going to say it was mostly, it was mostly men. It was mostly middle-aged older men and mostly white men of a certain age sitting on these boards. Now I think we're starting to see the composition of the boards be a little more reflective of the demographic, but how, when you're doing your coaching with your executives and their teams, how much do you stress diversity and how does diversity strengthen an organization? Yeah, it's a good question. I address diversity as it's needed on a, on a case-by-case basis. But in general, what I would say is, given my work on various diversity committees when I was in the corporate environment, and, and now even when I'm taking on potential client engagements, I do think about it from a diversity perspective. Am I the right individual to serve this person in a coaching capacity? Are they seeing in me something that resonates with them that would amplify our coaching engagement. It's not always an imperative, but it can amplify a coaching engagement. And going back to your question around boards, absolutely. It's a question of, am I seeing myself in a board, in management, in the people around me? Because what that ultimately means is we, you know, we typically tie that to, if I'm seeing myself in this space, probably means that they understand me and that I can be heard. Now, you of course can be heard and understood by people who are not within your diversity space, however you want to define that. But there can be a more solid link to seeing yourself represented and then having someone apply their understanding of what you see diversity in your community to be to the conversations that you have with them. That's not to say, though, that um, those conversations can't be had if you're not aligned from a diverse perspective. So, Carmela, one of the things I've told my boards for years is that having discordant voices on the board is not necessarily a bad thing. You may have somebody on the board who raises an issue that you haven't thought about. They push back against the status quo. For instance, why do we have all these rules? I had a community once send me their rule book. It was 24 pages long. And some of the rules, when we dug into them, at the urging of that board member who didn't agree with his fellow board members, was do you really need this particular rule anymore? So when we're talking about diversity, I don't think that there's an the issue, real issue with having discordant voices, although I do suspect that some people like to have everybody on the same page. And that's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I would say what I'm hearing in that is, and I, I, have, a, I have a perspective of, are you, are you being a contrarian or are you being a detractor? I actually think there's a role for a contrarian being, uh, and a respectful one, a contrarian being someone who rightfully and with good intention challenges what's being said, what's being heard, the path being taken, the actions, strategy being suggested. Different than the detractor who is, you know, the rules have been set, we've created alignment and we, we have agreement on how to move forward, and now I'm going to make sure it gets derailed. Yeah. And that creates that a level of dysfunction that our communities can't afford right now. So, you know, there's heightened stakes in Florida right now with the new legislation and we've got new safety mandates. We've got new engineering and reserve funding. Boards can no longer afford to be dysfunctional. It's really important that they work together to achieve this because the new laws, Carmelo, basically say they're in breach of fiduciary duty if they don't take certain steps. So towards that end, I have created over the years what I call board member code of conduct. I know a lot of my colleagues create them as well. And it tries to lay out some ground rules on how board members should interact with each other and with the residents and with the vendors. Do those kinds of written agreements work or is something more needed? I would say yes. I, I, you know, without without having reviewed the ground rules, I, generally it's important to have documented ground rules, and I think we all need some something to ground us and provide a foundation or a framework for how we behave and hold ourselves accountable. I guess the question I would have is, how did we get to that point? And bring it, tying it back to coaching competencies is, did we develop these ground rules, these agreements, whatever they might be, by engaging with all the stakeholders in a way that was inquisitive and collaborative? Have they endorsed the ground rules? It is, I guess, to a certain sense, trying to get everybody on board as much as possible, but also recognizing that 100% agreement across 100% of stakeholders might not be a realistic goal. But have you done as much as you could do in the front end in terms of the presence, powerful questions, active listening, creating awareness, setting goals so that you have as 
few, if none, detractors and have as much engagement with the rules and the agreement as much as possible. You've just made me rethink my approach to these board member codes of conduct, because you're right. In the past, it would be the board would say, and normally it's it's one or two members of the board who are authorized to speak to us. They say, hey, we've got a problem. We need to get together. You create the board member code of conduct. They distribute it, sign off. Of course, the contrarian says, I'm not signing this piece of garbage. And you're right. A different perspective may be, let's workshop this thing. Let's meet with the board. Let's create a code of conduct or at least have the dialogue. Doesn't mean that the contrarian board member is going to sign off on it, but at least they've played a role in creating it or we've asked those questions. You you have just changed yet again, Carmelo. You've changed my perspective on something. (laughs) Great to hear. So many business entities use mission statements. And I think only a hand, I've only heard of a handful of very large community associations that have ever done this. I know of one that I represented years ago. And again, it was an extremely large country club community. The board did have a mission statement. Do you think that community associations should start thinking about crafting a mission statement? I think it's absolutely relevant with any board, entity, organization, team, group, So the mission statement being, what are we currently doing and how does that serve the community that we're in or whoever it is that we're we're focused on? So what are we doing and how are we doing it? I would also argue that you might even consider a a vision statement. So what does, what is our, what's aspirational about what we're doing? What do we want the future state to look like? The mission statement is the current state. The vision statement is the future state. I would say that if you don't have a mission statement, clearly defined in some way, then what are you working towards? Or how are, how are you engaging? How are you behaving? I think it's essential, actually, to any team environment in any sort of board function or community association, whatever it might be. And I'm going to say, as the community association attorney here, boards don't attempt to craft that mission statement without checking with your community association attorney to make sure you're not putting things in the mission statement that you cannot achieve under your documents or you're missing things that your documents require. So it's very important. And I agree with you, Carmelo, mission statements help focus. What is the the focus? What are we doing here? And I said that in the introduction, that many of the people serving on these boards, they crafted mission statements during their professional careers. But when they get on these volunteer association boards, it's like so much of that valuable knowledge is no longer you know, in, in the forefront of their consciousness. But just my, I, I've got to say as a community association attorney, don't attempt, don't attempt to draft that mission statement without speaking to your association council to make Absolutely. sure you're not taking on any potential liability. <laughs> yes. Now you said at the outset that there's, or maybe you didn't say it here, we've talked about it before, that there's three levels of listening. So yes. what are they? Yeah, so... Three levels of listening. Level level one listening, and maybe I'll give you an example. Level one listening is listening for how it applies to you. Level two listening is listening for what advice you can give. And level three listening is listening for what the person is saying and is not saying. So what it means to the individual. And so to dig into that a bit, I'm sure that many of you who are listening to this podcast and maybe you, you've experienced this, I certainly have, where you, know, you might be in conversation with someone and you're, you're explaining a situation, you know, just to use an example, you, you might have you been up for a promotion and you didn't get it and you're talking to a friend or a family member or a spouse and you say, you know, I didn't get that promotion I was looking for. And their response is, you think you had a bad day, here's what happened to me. So listening for how it applies to you. That's level one. Level two listening is listening for what advice you can give. So in that same situation, that person might say to you, you know what? They don't deserve you. Leave. Find another job. That's the advice giving mode. And level three listening would be, again, listening for what the person is, is not saying is the response you would get in level three listening is something along the lines of, you know, I know how hard you've worked for that promotion. I know how important it is for you to be recognized for your accomplishments. How can I support you right now? So same scenario, three different ways of responding. It can be very challenging for us to be constantly in level three listening because it really that's really what active listening is about, is what, it, what are they saying and not saying about the situation? That is not to say that there are circumstances where level two, which is advice giving, isn't warranted and important, of course, 
but I would always challenge people to think about in a conversation, can I go to level three first and then ask for permission? Do you want my advice or do you just want to be heard here? So for all the parents out there, I will tell you as the mother of a a millennial daughter who is out in LA right now um, doing great things, I get killed if I do level one or level two listening. It's all about you. Oh, now you've made it about you, right? When you're trying to say, well, no, I was trying to, you know, say, hey, this happened to me at at your stage when I was in your stage of life. You're right. I've got to focus constantly on level three in that case, which is I've learned just to say, what do you need? That's it. It could be as simple as as one question. Absolutely, Donna. And and the key here to remember is, again, in a coaching conversation, and you can see how this applies in personal situations as much as professional. In a coaching conversation, you are not giving advice. So you would never be in level one or two. You would be in level three all the time. There's nothing wrong with asking for permission. And just if you're not sure just exactly what you said there, Donna, is what do you need from me right now? And let them tell you, I just need you to hear me. Or I actually need your advice, but let me spew a bit here first. And the same could apply to a conversation you're having with a board member or an owner. What is really being said here and what is not being said? That's an important piece of level three listening is in order to understand what is not being said by someone, you have to dig in. You have to ask more powerful questions, more open-ended questions, more inquisitive questions. Because oftentimes what people present as the surface issue, there's more underneath it. And the only way you're going to get there is, of course, going back to trust is you've built a foundation of trust or this is your process for building trust. And then on top of that, what, you, what you're doing is you've been given consciously or unconsciously the permission to dig deeper and understand what is really happening here. But it's hard. We're human. Yes. We forget. I mean, yes. level three listening is clearly the the goal and it's effective and it can immediately calm somebody down, particularly a millennial. (laughs) But my daughter's never listened to my podcast. This will be the (laughs) one episode that she tunes in and I I get an earful, but we're human. So, you know, can we get better at this? Yes. It takes work. I I would actually, I would actually say uh, active listening is one of the, and even as a coach, it's still one of the hardest things for me to grasp because I come in with my agenda. I come in with advice. I come in with experience that, you know, when someone presents a situation to me or a scenario, I'm immediately thinking, have I dealt with this before? And how have I dealt with this? And so how can I support you in fixing this? But fixing is not coaching. Fixing is absolutely necessary. Definitely, there are circumstances where we are required to provide subject matter expertise and guide people in a certain way. Particularly when, when you know, there's possible litigation in the in the forefront. We, we need to be able to guide people and give them specific advice. However, can we at least start with a space of not going in with my agenda, with my advice, with how this applies to me? It's very challenging. And so can this be done? Absolutely. And the way I do it is I often stop myself. As soon as I hear myself saying, Here's what I would do in this situation. I take a deep breath and I pause and I say, you're just listening right now. Just listen and ask a question. And when in doubt, ask another question. And when in doubt, ask another question. This is work. When they say they're doing the work, it's it's work. And, and for some people, look, they're not going to be willing to do the work. But for the people who are willing to do this, and I can attest personally, the rewards are incredible. Absolutely. Strategic planning is crucial for success, Carmelo. I know we've Mm -hmm. talked about this before. How do you discuss with clients how to undertake planning and goal setting? Well, I I think if if you're talking about a proper strategic plan, there's a lot behind that. So I'll try to to distill this in in a a few brief points is, one, I always start with being clear about the, the stakeholders. So who are the stakeholders in creating the strategic plan? What are the impacts and who does this impact? So do I have all the right stakeholders in terms of garnering input, getting input and feedback from the right individuals? The way I typically do start strategic planning or conversations even around mission, vision, value statements, as we discussed earlier, is to, okay, well, here are the stakeholders, here are the individuals involved. I typically start with one-on-one conversations to understand what's your perspective. So as an example, If it's a strategic plan and we're setting objectives for the year or whatever the term is, is what are your three to five core objectives as you see them? 
and what's important about these three to five objectives. So I have them create a column of here are my objectives and here's what's important about them. So I do that individually with each of the stakeholders. And then I take all the information from each of the stakeholders, I consolidate them into common themes, and typically what you'll see is several individuals will have the same objectives identified. And so now I consolidate them and say, you know, several of you have addressed these three or five core objectives as important. And then I bring the team together and say, let's now let's have a brainstorming session around, are these actually the objectives that are important to you as a team and how are we going to prioritize them? And so it's a little bit of a brainstorming team exercise around, here's the information I, I've, I've garnered from you individually. Now let's come together as a team and collaborate so that we can get some consensus on the approach that we're going to take. You know, these are the objectives. Now what are the action items? What are the what are the deadlines? Who's responsible? All of those things that are associated with a strategic plan. I hope our association listeners who are just on the precipice of really big projects, whether it's a document rewrite, a complete document rewrite project in some of our communities right now, it's terminating the condominium or selling the cooperative property altogether. That is a huge decision what you just walked through in terms of getting people to set the goal and do some strategic long, long-term strategic planning is going to be so crucial for those communities who are thinking about these big projects, even large uh, repair and improvement projects. So my experience, Carmelo, is when a board is sitting and thinking about who they want to serve as their officers, it's board president, vice president, treasurer, secretary, Right. I don't know how they do it. I sat on my own board um, for two years, very two very long years in my HOA, and we elected, and I couldn't tell you today what went into the thought process. I think it was just, you know, Joe was on the board. He was been president for a long time. Let's just keep him in that position. But what I have found over the years is that often the board president takes the lead in terms of communicating, whether it's with owners who have a problem, whether it's trying to navigate disputes amongst board members, whether it's dealing with the professional advisors or the contractors. But a lot of times that president does not have the necessary communication skills. They're not active listeners. They're all about the level one listening. They're they're not asking inquisitive questions. They don't really want those answers. They don't even have time for it. How would you recommend that boards choose their mouthpiece? Yeah, I, I would find the person who, based on this discussion, has a has a coach like approach, whether natural or whether you whether you see that capability in them. So who is it that has a presence that you know engenders a feeling of trust? Who is it that shows up inquisitive with an inquisitive mindset? Who is it that is less judgmental, more learning mode? Who is it that is more serving, less fixing? That's not to say that this person doesn't have to have subject matter expertise to be able to advise in the moment. But I would say if their role is mainly in the communication, they can be the conduit between you know, what the president and the board thinks in terms of the intention of the communication and the needs and getting that message out to the right target audience. But I would say who's, you know, who's, who's, who has great presence, who, who asks the right questions, good questions, inquisitive questions, who listens actively, who creates awareness, who has that energy. Here's another thought. If you want Joe, who doesn't have any of those skills, to remain and be the mouthpiece, then maybe invest in some coaching for Joe absolutely. or Jane on the board. Yes, yeah, this absolutely. is the point. The whole point of the episode is to, to to let people know that there is a resource out here, and in my opinion, it's an untapped resource. I have yet to hear of a board that decided to invest in some coaching for their board members, or at least just one board member who's going to be taking the lead on these things. Yeah. And I, I mean, it might be obvious in this conversation. I think the benefits of coaching are significant. I've, I've, I've experienced it. You know, my, my entry into coaching started with going to a coach and not knowing what to expect. Quite frankly, this was 15 years ago. So I've seen, I've seen it in myself, but I've seen it in others where uh, their entire way of being shifts for the sake of a better version of themselves. I've seen that. However, I would also say not everybody is coachable. You have to be willing to immerse yourself in that space because a lot of us, if we're in a coaching conversation and we're leading that conversation, we don't go in with our agenda or providing advice, at least not initially. Many 
Coaches, the person on the receiving end, actually will start to get a little bit uncomfortable in that space of, oh, I need to figure this out on my own. I need to surface these things on my own. Just tell me what to do. So we can we can actually see someone not not being coachable in the sense of, I actually want you to tell me what to do. I want you to guide me. I want you to be very direct and specific with my next action. Again, nothing wrong with that space. If that's if that's what someone needs, more consulting, more maybe more mentoring to a certain extent, fine. But to get into the coaching space and to have a coaching conversation is very different and not everybody's ready for that. It starts with do you, do you have the are, are you willing to be open and and transparent about where you are, where are you right now and what's your desired future state? Cuz that's, that's a vulnerable that's a vulnerable conversation. You just took the word out of my mouth. Vulnerable. Yeah. A lot of times when we're dealing with these conflicts, particularly in communities, it's about somebody not getting egg on their face or saving face, right? It may be the board member who has picked a fight and is now going to lose it and it's going to undermine that board president or the owner who has picked it and wants to wants to save some face, you know, with his or her neighbors. So it's about willing to be vulnerable. I agree with that. Yeah. And, and the way to make someone feel comfortable in being vulnerable is to model it yourself first. Even if you are in coaching mode, whether or not you are a certified coach or not, it's about showcasing some vulnerability in yourself before expecting that in someone else. That might not be easy for a board member to do. It's not easy for most people. Mm-hmm. Not easy for me, not easy for most of the people I know, but it's important. And it's part of the work you talked about. Mm-hmm. Carmelo, in communities, it's really important to get people off on the right foot, right? To expect because, and again, I just had this conversation in a, in a prior uh, episode with Marisa Delenge. We'll put the link to, to that show as well. But it was about the interview process. So when you're interviewing a potential new purchaser or you're interviewing a new tenant coming into the community, part of that screening uh, usually includes a personal interview. And that's where the person is either going to leave the interview feeling good about the community and his or her place in it or not. In the original trailer to this show, I mentioned my own purchase screening um, interview straight out of law school. My husband, Michael, and I we wanted to buy a townhouse in Aventura, and we were told to meet with the president, the board president, and they sat us down. Hadn't started my my community association career yet, and the president looked at us both, and he and we're both two brand new, brand new minted attorneys, and he said, "If I like you, you're in. If I don't, you're not." And we looked at each other, and we said, "God, we hope he likes." <laughs> and he wound up he wound up inter you know approving us. All of that was was improper. Um, challengeable, everything that I knew after I began this career. But in terms of getting people off on the right foot, how can board members and managers conducting those interviews set the right tone? And I think I already know the answer because it's the <laughs> act of listening. It's the, it's the inquisitive, you know, what are you looking for in a community? Really eliciting more from us about maybe why we wanted to live there and what we, you know, things like that. That's it. Absolutely. All those things that we talked about, presence, active listening, powerful questions. But then it's it's what what are the specific questions you're asking? And so a, a couple of things on, on asking questions is one thing I always say is try to keep them as open ended as possible. Uh, so it might be things like what's important to you? What are your values? You might not even say what are your values, but even because that might be hard for people to to express. What is, what's important to you? Have them tell you what's important to you because in that they'll reveal some of their values. So does that align with the values of the community? What are you, what are you looking for in a community? What are your deal breakers in being in a community? What, what do you need to know about us? So there's, you know, maybe these are some of the questions that you've, you've seen or experienced yourself, or maybe you see this in some of the, some of the work that you do, but it really is about, do you have a repository of questions that are really allowing the, uh, the interviewee to reveal enough about themselves to understand whether there's alignment here. That's really, really important advice. And I imagine that you can use all of the coaching methodologies that you've been discussing in this episode, Carmela, whether it's having a, a conversation with an employee over progressive discipline and a possible termination situation. Maybe you're dealing with an arbitrator or another trier of fact. 
who's, you know, trying to mediate a dispute in the community. These listening and, and skills and the communication skills you teach, I think they have a broad application. Absolutely. I really, it really, uh, you know, level of authority, subordinate or not, really doesn't apply in coaching. It's really, it starts with fit. Is this the right fit for me? Is this the right person to have this conversation? Is this the right starting point? And then the, the you know, the coaching competencies just feed into that. But the, the foundation of that is fit and trust. Do your coaching methods change depending on whether the person you're coaching is in a position of authority, an executive, for example, versus a subordinate position? It doesn't change based on their level. So authority versus subordinate. It, it really just it, it might shift based on their their desired future state. So really, it's not relevant who they are in terms of their role. It's relevant what's their intention in terms of where they are now and what they foresee as what they want to meet as their objective. And so that might shift depending on what they state as, a, as an objective. It might shift where I go in a coaching conversation, but it doesn't shift the methodologies that I describe. Those remain with all coaching engagements. So we've all gotten so lazy I'm just going to say it when it comes to communication with emails, you know, texts, tweets, you name it. Can you engage in active listening electronically? That's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) I think the way I would answer that is what can you control in the communication, which is what is your intention in sending the message? So are, are you sharing information? Are you creating awareness? Are you asking someone to take action? Are you clear about who your target audience is in that communication? And what is important about this message to that target audience? And then in addition to that, is this the right medium to communicate this message to your target audience? Because I think sometimes we can jump to the medium before thinking about the actual message and intention, because it might not be the medium that you suspect that is the appropriate method. And the other thing I would say is if this message were to go public, would you feel comfortable with the tone of the message? So, um, of course, a lot of communication is confidential, but you also just want to think, is this is this something that I would, I would be comfortable, barring any confidentiality pieces or sensitivity pieces that someone would read and not not perceive a ill intention on my part? And I think I, think I know and, you're, you're, you're teaching well enough to know that for the important conversations, pick up the phone, right? Or even maybe go in person, set an in-person meeting, right? Absolutely. Because I, I, think, I think it would be, I've never done... Coaching by, you know, let's say email or text or those methods, I, you know, the, the, the coaching methodology that I'm describing here requires face to face, whether on screen or in person, and frankly, can work by phone as well. Uh, I don't know that it can happen by through written form. So I, I, I could talk to you all day long. I mean, I'm already the wheels are already turning. We have we've covered so much territory. So last question. Are there any perfect adults out there who don't need coaching and they're just, they get it, (laughs) you know, they're perfect, but, or does everyone need coaching at some point in their adult lives? I I think it's case by case. I think, you know, I'm going to go back to the, the, the um, query around, are you coachable? Are you ready to, are you ready to engage in a conversation where someone doesn't give you the answers? That's not everybody's comfort zone. I would say even in situations where someone's, you know, professional or and personal life is on track. It's as they expect it to be. There's the benefits of coaching can be just in tweaking things here and there, tweaking approaches to certain situations and scenarios, and and gaining a different perspective and gaining gaining awareness. Even if it's a you know small shift, coaching doesn't have to be about big shifts. You know, when I talk about that, what's your current state and future state? That future state doesn't have to be you know, fireworks, explosive, so grand that it's, it's it almost seems unattainable. Oftentimes I'm working with people where it's, it's a step, it's a small step to get to a, a, a you know, a, a new state, a new desired future state. So everybody can be coached if, if they are coachable and willing to immerse themselves in that space. Well, I can confirm that on personal experience. So Carmelo, do you have any links or resources you want to share with our audience today? Absolutely. I, the, I would start with when it comes to coaching competencies and a general understanding of coaching, the International Coaching Federation, coachingfederation.org, provides some great free resources to get you started thinking about coaching and how you might apply it. And it reinforces a lot of what we talked about here. 
And certainly the competencies around uh, what I do with Accurt can be found at Accurt.com. And AttuneCoach.com also provides a perspective on what I do from a leadership development, team engagement, and career fulfillment perspective. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Carmelo. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Donna. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit TakeItToTheBoard.com for more ways to connect.